Hi, my name is Ali Reza Mojibian, and welcome to Noteworthy. What do you think about when you see a theatrical performance? Typically, most people comment on the music and hopefully praise the performance of the actors and the brilliance of the director. The fact is, the staging of the director and the performance of the actors would mean a whole lot less if it wasn't for the tireless and dedicated craft work of costume designers, makeup artists, the technical and production staff of the theater, and, as with all great productions, the lighting designers. My guest this week is a beloved member of the Vancouver Theater and Performing Arts Worlds. Welcome, Jeremy. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Good to talk to you. Likewise. I'm going to start at the very beginning here and ask you, how did you first get involved with theater? Well, I guess... I guess you kind of have to think to sort of childhood. I remember as a kid, like always being interested in putting on shows like dress up and stuff like that was always a big part of childhood. And my, my uncle's actually was a photographer and he had a video camera and using, using that was for recording kind of theater antics stuff that you with, with some friends and things like that was always part of it. I, I, in many ways, I never really, like, I certainly didn't pursue it as a career. I sort of thought it was kind of a fun, uh, fun thing at that time. But I had uh, definitely had school theater experiences. And I think it was around grade nine when somebody asked me if I wanted to do, uh, it was a Midsummer Night's Dream. And it was like, it, you know, if I wanted to do sound for the production. And at that time, it was like queuing up a bunch of cassette tapes. And <laughs> I started learning the high school lighting system and from some of the senior students. And you suddenly become kind of fall into the technical thing. It's like, oh, he knows how to set it up. And then you sort of fall into these things. But I, I, I fooled around with lots of acting. I was in a really great community acting program as a kid. So I guess I was always pretty focused on theater, the collaboration that goes on in it. And that's still, that's definitely a theme that's always stayed with me. I feel like there's a, there's a big sort of uh, collaboration aspect to putting on shows in whatever, in every, any capacity on any scale, really. Like I feel like there might be a hierarchy. There's a, there's still, you know, this person is in charge of this. This person is the visionary. This is director. This is a designer. You know, that there's still a hierarchy, but there's a, there's a common sort of collect. It's a collective collaboration on many levels. So yeah, you know, all those people that we don't always see, right down to arts administrators. You know, I think there's lots of people behind all this stuff. So I guess I became more and more aware of that because I wasn't, I never was really at, ho- at home as an actor. Like I, I played around with acting and I liked that idea, but I, I just, what that wasn't, that, that wasn't for me. So it was kind of refreshing to find other ways that you can be part of the kind of wacky, I think performing arts attracts people who maybe don't want to do a nine to five type of thing or do something too regular. There's sort of more of a dynamic lifestyle to it. But So you said grade nine was Midsummer Night's Dream. Was there a, a focal point or a, or a production that really uh, solidified things for you and, and got you to work more on the technical side of things than the actual acting side? One of the most sort of... Um, eye-opening theater experiences happened it was in high school there was a a production taking place it was actually caravan stage company from here that had they had separated and and paul kirby had started um 
doing caravan stuff in the Toronto area and they came to Kingston and they did a show at Wolf Island, which was kind of crazy. Like it's, you take a ferry for half an hour from Kingston and, and it's like cow fields. And they did this epic production there and they recruited a bunch of high school people to join in and do stuff. And so I was like, sure, that was a, I mean, this is much more of like a gypsy kind of style of production. And there was like a lot of different people and they were, they even had somebody who just cooked for everybody was living there camping. They had like cars and horses and, you know, we, we were recruited to build stuff and we were operating puppets and kind of acting in it as well. And as like background and I thought it would always be fun to <laughs> pursue a career with all that. Yeah, totally. When you graduated high school, did you move directly to BC or did you stick around in Ontario and in Kingston area before moving? I sort of actually finished in a four and a half years because Ontario, there was sort of the grade 13. Anyway, so I finished in January and I went on a actually kind of a huge trip to Mexico with my uncle, the photographer. And so I did some traveling and then came to tried to figure out where to go to school. And I actually hadn't intended to come to Vancouver, but then I I just thought it was such a great place. And I really liked the idea of living here. I didn't know much about UBC, but coming out here, it was like, I just thought it was a great setting. And um, it was kind of exciting to go away from Southern Ontario. So I just made the big move. Yeah, it was basically so right after high school, essentially just a short short travel break, but then came out here, went to, went to UBC theater. And even in the first year was still doing like acting and general theater. And I was also pursuing creative writing for quite a bit. I was pursuing creative writing, but I guess I just thought, you know, that might be really fun to do a degree in creative writing, but then like, what am I going to do with that necessarily? Like, you know, I, I just was, I guess I wasn't committed to being a writer. So it was like, you know, I don't know. I kind of fumbled my way into tech theater and it was like, oh, this, there's work. I can get work. <laughs> you have been part of the Vancouver arts community for over 25 years. And currently, correct me if I'm wrong, but you are the technical director for six performing arts festivals and theater companies in the city, including Push International Performing Arts Festival, Vancouver International Children's Festival, the Vancouver Folk Music Festival, just to name a few. Did you go into lighting wanting to work for these companies? Did you know about these companies beforehand or uh, wanting to work with them in some capacity and and lighting and technical uh, direction ended up being where you fit in? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it was... Lighting's always been, you know, I think it's, I think it's sort of an interesting combination of like technical stuff that you've got to work out, like what's physically possible, what logistically, what you can achieve with available power and resources or whatever, but it also lends quite a creative component to a production. Like, I mean, having said that, I always think people don't really notice lighting until you screw it up. Like, you know, the, the person standing in the dark and there's a bunch of light beside them, you'll notice that. Or, <laughs> but, um, but it was actually, I guess it was lighting and, and even sound design too, that I was really kind of playing around with at university. And then there was a guy at uh, UBC at the time, Ian, Ian Pratt, who was he was the technical director of, of the of the Frederick Wood back for a, a long time, actually, and during the time I was there, and it was sort of through him that I realized kind of what a TD is and what they do. Like I don't think I really had any concept of that even 
and I still I'm still figuring it out but but it I guess I just thought it was kind of interesting that he like he was such a problem solver and like take things apart and okay how can we make this really cool for the show and like he particularly was so passionate about it I think that was that that really kind of sparked for me that that was like that is a creative job in a way it it is it's and I yes it's it's sort of like get this done get this done and make it on budget or whatever but it's still like working with available resources and being resourceful doing what doing what you can to kind of make it cool or whatever it is like i and this is the same with lighting design i i it's great to to contribute to the show and make it look nice and Lighting's one of those things where you can make it so much nicer if you've got huge budgets, you know, it's like, <laughs> but but then it doesn't always have to be that way. So it's sort of, um, I continue to enjoy lighting, but TD work has actually been more of my bread and butter, I think, just because there's more of a demand. Everybody, uh, I don't know, everybody's always looking for those people. So there is a, sh- there is a shortage of them here in Vancouver for some reason. <laughs> this actually begs the question because um, I think, at, at school, I mean, even though we learned a lot, I don't think, um, I think I'm definitely a, a layman when it comes to not the job description, but the, but the work description of what a technical director does. What does a day in a technical director's life look like? <laughs> well, I guess it depends really on what the project is or who you're working with. But I think it's, it is a good like distinction, I guess, in, in a nutshell, you've got like a production manager who kind of oversees the whole production team and is maybe contracting people, the designers maybe even, or, or if it's a more like an event or something, then they would contract certain people like the TD who, and, and a production manager would, would oversee certain technical components, but not to a great detail. Whereas, a technical director is generally the person who looks after sort of executing the schedule with the crew, making sure the crew all knows what needs to be done, making sure all the, I mean, I guess it so much depends on context, but you're looking after making sure all the, all the details with the backstage stuff. I mean, lighting, there's, scenery risers seating there's a safety component technical directors often i think they're one of their big stresses is uh is event safety and just obviously audience safety is the first priority making sure that like you've got all that stuff taken care of but it fills in a lot of gaps between things um i always think it's sort of a job that like when you're when you're doing it well, you don't have anything to do because the crew is all doing what they know they're supposed to be doing and and everything's moving along and but you're the person who organized it all to make sure that everybody's following through with it. Sometimes I find it hard to explain to people even even who work within the industry like it's I, 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 and I don't mean to make it sound all sort of like high and mysterious it's it's just it's making stuff happen, I guess. Making things tick. Well, I mean, with that, I have to ask, are there some uh, memorable uh, moments from, from shows that you could share? Well, the Push Festival always has the best stories. I mean, they they have brought some pretty uh, outlandish productions from, we've had European or, or, or even even the US, I mean, bigger parts where uh, where they come here and it's like, we just don't have the same scale to 
to be able to do that. Our theaters aren't as big, I mean, or whatever. We don't have the budgets to pull that off. But so, yeah, but so push festivals run up against those kinds of things with some of the interesting work that they've brought over the years and really technically challenging with, you know, companies coming with uh, different equipment needing, needing like d- different power cycle, like something that's really hard to change. There was the, the early days at the SFU with where we built the Mexican plywood wall that was like, 25 feet by 30 feet that the guy had to climb up and we had to make the ladder rungs for it and bolt them on and scaffolding. And it was, it was all stuff that was part of the show, but it was the presenter was supposed to provide all that. So it was kind of all on us. And I guess those are the kind of challenges pulling stuff off uh, what the vision is, what the artists want and what the producer can afford. And the TD is the person who kind of sweats that out a little bit. So yeah, Push Festival's had some interesting ones with some of the magnitude of shows they've brought. But it's really been, um, I've learned a lot working with them and it's certainly about uh, all the details of technology and some of the, like vid- video, video continues to be an area, live performance that just moves so quickly. And geez, even in my time, people were still using slide projectors and, you know, We've moved so quickly into like um, now. Now you have to decide whether or not you're shooting in 4K or or 8K. Mm-hmm, yeah, um. and have the <laughs> the playback stuff that can reliably execute all that, and it's it's hard to keep up with. I I, I find that's a big thing with g- getting older as a technical person is you 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 keeping up with all that stuff. Like and now moving as we've moved into um, all this stuff with kind of streaming and online, like having to move to well, just to Zoom or trying to reach audiences remotely, it's really put a lot of pressure on, on technical people to kind of figure all that stuff out with live streaming and broadcast and video. And No, I, I, I totally agree. It's, um, I mean, we were just talking about right before we, uh, we started recording the difficulties of even um, getting the podcast equipment to work sometimes um, before recordings. So in my seven years at UBC, I think roughly we shared 24 productions i know i know it's different um in every performance venue and and uh for different types of productions but with regards to opera say you get a, a script for a new show uh that you've never done before how would you approach pre- preparing the design for that show and what's the process that goes into it it always depends on scope uh, to some extent i mean and time i I mean, with a proper, with a proper design process, yeah, you want to be able to get a sense of the, what's the, what's the general sense of the show. Even before seeing a rehearsal, you kind of know what, what kind of piece it is or what, what are going to be the big elements or what's, if there's a preliminary set design, you you kind of look through those things. And I guess it depends a bit on which venue it's in now that the opera works in different venues. And certainly over the years I've worked with UBC opera, they, we've had some venue changes. Uh, unfortunately, I, I have to answer practically with, with a lot of stuff. I mean, so much of design work, you look at what you've got to work with and yes, exactly. um, the time you have. So unfortunately, I, I mean, the, the, the true reality of working with UBC opera is that there's never really enough time to do like a proper 
design process the, the way you might want to learn about learn it in school like <laughs> where you you know you come up with your concepts and you get your plot early and work out some a bunch of things and make a cue list and i mean i i get through all that but it's it becomes a lot quicker and the queuing process happens pretty very quickly you don't really have the luxury of stopping through technical rehearsals to get it right like okay let's do that again we run it for seven seconds that fade was too slow like this person's walking across the stage let's get it right you don't we don't really get that time with ubc opera so it's more about getting the general looks and like okay this is an outdoor garden scene that has a lot of people so we need the coverage across the stage and wants to look daytime and you know it's 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 more sort of analyzing it that way and um but it's but it's fun well operas i like opera i guess in 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 some ways because i feel like you can you can kind of ham it up a bit with the lighting like you can go for some more kind of saturated colors and just because opera is big and everything's big and there's a fantasy aspect to it so it lends itself to to fun lighting I, I it's always a bit hard that we don't get more time on the opera productions i mean some of the ones where we've really given the extra time i think it usually pays off like even this past year with the passenger i mean that was that that was a that was a nice one and i i it's hard for me because i don't like even with that one i was working on the push festival and i was doing that and i really just didn't have enough time you get faster at things and but yes, that process, I mean, you the more you can learn a show and really learn, plan out your cues early, I think that helps when you're moving in on something as quick as the as the opera where you kind of have to record the lighting cues around the maybe maybe two or three dress rehearsals that you get with everybody in place, like you know, and you're usually often stopping because the maestro wants to do something where they want it. They don't run the transitions. And it's like, no, but that's where the lighting cue is. Like, wait, we need to run that part. Oh. And then it's like, okay, t- tomorrow's the show. <laughs> so, I've seen your face a couple of times where we've been in completely different cues as the music is going on. And you're yeah, just like, yeah, yeah. just go, just go, <laughs> just yeah. go. Well, that, I mean, that's what I mean. Like, you know, you, you notice lighting when it's bad and, and, so so then it becomes like okay well we can't have that many cues because there's not enough time so this so we got a nice look for this act and we got a nice you know that nice changeover look and then this like it's you you start working it out that way and but it's still lots of fun i mean i'm always i've I've kind of worked that way with with nancy and the opera ensemble for a long time but i think of it as like like maybe that's not the way they teach lighting design in the theater department in the same way, I guess, like that it's a bit more of a fast process. So it's, it would be a bit confusing, I guess, at a student level. Maybe that's why, but I, I, I've had great success involving um, students in the opera because I think it, I think it's a valuable experience to see how that process goes. As we clearly all know, the damage done by the pandemic and the shutdowns has been devastating for the arts organizations, but more so for the lifeblood of those organizations, their employees and the contractors are hit the hardest. I wanted to ask um, about your perspective on how things are going um, nine months into the pandemic and what you've seen and experienced in the community over the last year. Yeah, that's well, it's been... 
Yeah, it's been terrible. I mean, the, <laughs> this year has been terrible. Pandemic-wise, I I don't know. It's just been sad. It was a sad spring when everything was getting cancelled. And uh, but at the same time, of, of course, I'll I'll say that I still get the sense that all these organizations want to keep doing something. And I was, you know, I know for myself, I worked with quite early on in in pandemic times. Uh, the Children's Festival, you know, had to cancel their event, but they did some online stuff. And that, that was a really quick sidestep for them. Like, and we just did really basic live streaming, you know, on Facebook Live, kind of free and accessible. But I, it just made me realize, well, you know, what else are they going to do? Like, as an arts organization, you don't want to stop completely. It's all about your momentum from year to year, getting your funding for this project and the next project. Like if you stop doing things, you you kind of jeopardize your future. So I'm really seeing all these companies now, like just finding ways to do shows. If it's small audiences, um, obviously all the live stream stuff are, or I always distinguish between true kind of live stream versus like recorded and then kind of made available like on demand. However people are doing it, it's, I think, I think it's good. I struggle with all that technology and I don't, I wish, I wish how people weren't looking to me. <laughs> it's like, I'm like, uh, don't ask me. I don't know. What, what do you think I am? The TD? Oh, wait. Um, no, but it, it's, it's just all that. It's all so, it's also computer internet based and uh, I don't know. Anyway, it's good. It's, it's good to see. Uh, I mean, I worked this fall with Vancouver Opera and they're kind of a bit of a fish out of water too. Like they're doing stuff in a different venue within a completely different format. And, but it's good, you know, they're doing stuff, they're employing people, they're, they're, they're working, you know, the same with uh, Teatro La Cesiem, the theater company I work, the Francophone guys, they, they did a show in September. And it's encouraging to see that, that at least people aren't, just completely frozen by the pandemic and necessarily like I worry about the future paying for this though because the current the current tone is like the funders are giving people money to kind of keep going but uh, I don't know for the future I, don't, I, I, I worry about I kind of worry about the debt from the pandemic I mean from your from your perspective going into 2021 what would you say to people who who we would consider uh, lay people who are who are obviously audiences and and patrons of the arts but not necessarily fully involved what would you say needs to happen in order to keep the arts in better shape for the future um and to develop cultural institutions that can stand withstand situations like this yeah those are big those are big questions i think that in essence is kind of what hopefully what what the pandemic is is causing or allowing people to think about is because it, it has brought out some of the fragility of it and i think i think there's lots of reflecting the arts community seems to be doing a lot of changing happening some of it hasn't been all that good necessarily or it's i don't know it's been sort of tumultuous but there are people reflecting about what it's like like do people work too hard like i know i've been hearing that conversation quite a bit does the entertainment industry drive people too hard and expect too much and then burn them out like in order to succeed in entertainment you pretty much have to do that so you know what does that mean like anybody who works in film i mean look at their they don't have a life <laughs> i think some of the somehow in some way the pandemic has kind of caused people to reflect on like the health and wellness of 
of all of that. And that maybe, you know, maybe coming back to, we can't do that as much or, but I'm not really sure, like, ultimately, you know, there's so many major organizations across, well, I certainly know about the continent that that have had to lay everybody like Cirque du Soleil and the Metropolitan Opera and like Live Nation, all those concerts. Like it's you think of all the people that are involved in all aspects of that. Um, in just in terms of arena staff, certainly in the U.S., like that kind of those kind of big shows that cycle around all the arenas. That's so you know. I mean, all just all the pop concerts that used to happen every single year. Uh, all over the country and in stadiums all over North America, uh, just a sheer number of people that they hire when they go into local places. It's a, it's a, it's a lot that, that happens. I mean, even, even concerts here in, in Vancouver or, or um, <clears throat> large scale performances like Cirque du Soleil, as you mentioned. Yeah, um, that's right. It's, it, it's kind of crazy how much of an effect it's had. It's, it's understandable, but it's still unfathomable of how large an extent it's had and how much of the population it's affected. Yeah. Well, and I I mean, going back to your question, like, I guess, I don't know. I think like we have to expect that it's, even though we want all that stuff back and we want, you know, like I, I want to be able to work at the Vancouver folk music festival where thousands of people are together in Jericho park. Like, but I also realize that it's going to take for a bit of time for that to come about again. Like I think it's going to be a while. So I guess people have to kind of accept that and find ways of getting through that and just hoping that the end end result is to be able to get back to normal. But I don't know, I'm starting to feel like normal is going to take some time. So there has to be a, some recognition of that. What I've noticed, uh, especially since doing uh, starting this podcast back in May and just to the people I've had the incredible pleasure of speaking to like yourself is that regardless of the of the pain and the damage that's been done there is this unwavering feeling of hope that even though the future is uncertain there's still a concerted effort to push forward which is really really good to see and because it means that there is light at the end of the tunnel and hopefully when things start to bounce back there, there's going to be a workforce there ready to rebuild and rebuild in a better and hopefully stronger way for the future. Yeah, exactly. That's like a, in a, in a personal experience way, it's like surviving a trauma. You, you, you know, your emotions are deeper because you, you know, you've felt that pain or you've, so then you get higher highs and lower lows, I suppose. But, <laughs> yeah. but you gotta, you still gotta write them. <laughs> That's right. But I think it'll be, so. you know, I, I think, people can look forward to like that relief that celebration of i mean that's what we're all waiting for i suppose it was so great to catch up with jeremy after so many months learning about his history the work that goes on behind the scenes of every production and his take on the pandemic was enlightening Thank you, Jeremy, and all of the incredible teams of craft artists who make each and every production a reality, especially during the pandemic. You can reach us on Instagram at Noteworthy Podcast and through our website at www.noteworthypodcast.com. As always, please make sure you support your local arts and cultural institutions in any way you can. Your support can come from giving financially or something as simple as reposting about digital events through your social media platforms so more people can see what's happening in your city. Thank you for listening.